You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. you were so sure was real what if you were unable to wake from that dream how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world what is happening to me the answer is out there neo it's the question that drives us what is the matrix The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Christine Makepeace. Oh, hello. Good to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ben Buckingham. 
always lovely to be here, even if there is no Ben. On this episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at the Wachowski siblings, The Matrix. Released in 1999, the film stars Keanu Reeves as Thomas Neo Anderson, a cubicle jockey who's looking for the meaning in his life by way of the notorious hacker Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Neo gets more than he bargained for when he learns that the world in which we live is a computer-generated construct, the titular Matrix. I'm not sure if it's possible to spoil this film, though there may be a few people out there within the sound of my voice that haven't seen it. So if you haven't, go watch it and come back after you have. We will still be here. Christine, when was the first time you saw The Matrix and what did you think? I saw it pretty soon after it came out on home video. Uh, so probably 2000. I did not like it at all. <laughs> I think it, I think, I don't know, was I too young? Did I just not get it? Maybe that's why. I think it's good, though, that I didn't enjoy it that much, because it let me rediscover it when I appreciated it more. When was that? Probably about eight or nine years ago. And then I was just over the moon. How could I not have liked this movie? I'm so curious to know why you didn't like it. You know, it has a weird story structure. I think it has an act structure that you don't expect. Um, and I got bored. It lost me. I couldn't I couldn't get into it. And Ben, how about yourself? I saw it in the cinemas back in 1999. I even remember at the time being like, where did this film come from? Like, it was just suddenly one day there was this www.whatisthematrix.com. And that was suddenly everywhere. And then suddenly everyone was talking about it. And suddenly we were watching in the cinemas and it felt like it was something that had been building and coming for a long time. And it came out of nowhere. And I don't know if that was just me or the film or the way it's marketed or anything, but it fits it all quite well because <laughs> I felt a little bit like Neo going, wait, what? Whoa, oh, shit. Whoa. Whoa. I saw this one also at the theater, and I specifically remember, I think it was either when Trinity jumps up and we do our first bullet time or when she flies through the window Andrea leaned over to me and said, we're going to own this on DVD, which was like the big compliment of the time, right? Like that you're actually going to own a movie on DVD because this is early in the days. I think we maybe had three in our collection at the time, which just makes me very nostalgic. And yeah, we absolutely love this movie. I watched it on DVD. I don't know how many times, but that was it. I like this movie and then I never really got that into it. It wasn't like I fell into The Matrix. I was just like, yeah, yeah, that's a really solid film. And the thing I think I liked about it the most was that it really felt like a natural progression to me as far as the special effects, trying to bring Asian action into an American theater. I had seen a bunch of attempts to do that, some of them a lot less successful than others. I think about things like the replacement killers or the big hit, and it's just like, yeah, we're kind of getting there, but we're just not doing it. This movie worked. This movie had the kung fu scenes, had Yuan Wuping doing the choreography, and then you had the gun fu scenes, which just made my heart go aflutter because I was just reminded so much of John Woo, especially when they're just like, we need lots and lots of guns. I'm like, yeah, thinking back to uh, the killer when he's got that big 
duffel bag full of guns that he's putting into the trunk before the finale. I'm like, yes, this is hitting me on every right level. So, yeah, I just uh, really fell in love with this film. I'm also really curious to hear about uh, more about Christine's early engagement with it, but I will say uh, I didn't have this on DVD because DVD took forever to come to Australia. It was way too expensive for this poor kid. Well, didn't you guys only get color TV in like 1974 or something like that? Uh, I had an ex-rental VHS, <laughs> not in widescreen, <laughs> which I definitely watched a lot. But that was primarily, I think I, think I probably saw it, I would have seen it like probably three times in the cinemas, I think, because I would have gone with my mom and I would have gone with my dad and I probably saw it another time. But yeah, it was a year for revisiting the cinemas a lot because, of course, this is like Fight Club as well in 99. And yeah, it was just, there was a lot happening in that year of weird overlaps in imagery and situations. I was 16 when this came out, so I didn't have a huge amount of knowledge of the Asian action cinema. I hadn't seen any of those films that you mentioned other than The Killer but I was definitely already down the rabbit hole of existential philosophy and hardcore sci-fi, so I was jamming on that side. <laughs> I finally found the uh, the story treatment that they submitted to, I can't remember if it was Silver Pictures or to uh, Circle of Confusion. The write-up of the, the script is just like, yeah, the first 35 pages are great, and then it just falls off the edge. And I'm like, really? This script did not burn up the charts and it was submitted i mean the movie came out what 99 and the script was submitted the original draft way back the write-up of it was uh february 4th 1994 so this thing had been kicking around for a while people or at least the person that wrote the coverage for it did not really get into it and i can kind of understand why it was a much different film when they first started out and it was funny because I finally sat down and read this treatment, and there's a lot of talk about the bad guys in the film are called cyber marines, and they're described as being kind of a mix of Robocop and Terminator. So this movie really started off in a much more Terminator direction. And then when I rewatched the movie last night, I was like, Oh, okay. Now I see the Terminator. I'm seeing a lot more, and especially Terminator 2 is what I was seeing. The whole idea of the burned out world. And rather than sending someone back through time, you're pulling them out of the matrix and using them as this hero to defeat the computers. But this whole idea of, you know, when Skynet became sentient and all this, I'm like, Oh yeah, I can, I can really see. The Terminatorness of this movie now doesn't detract from me, but it's very interesting to see where some of those origins are. There's so much AI talk, and I don't know why. Maybe I just never like honed in that hard on it. And I just recently watched Terminator Dark Fate, my favorite Terminator movie. That's a different podcast, though. I was like, wow, yeah, this is this is very in that universe. And and growing up, I didn't really like the Terminator movies. I didn't go in for that level of that kind of sci-fi. It was never appealing to me. It's definitely something that has come on with age. Uh, and I think it, it helps me appreciate this type of film now. It was able to take those ideas and do something different with it, though which I really do appreciate. Christine, were you a big sci-fi person when you were younger, when you were not liking these things, or is it just no. these kinds of sci-fi? You weren't at all? 
No, not at all. It's interesting because I've got a book, and I think I've referenced it like numerous times in this podcast, called Terminal Identity, and it actually posits that sci-fi is the narrative form for the 20th slash 21st century because of the way it dislocates people and forces them to approach things without uh, context and knowledge, and that is very discomforting for a lot of people. And so it it's interesting how much that matches up when I used to work in cinemas and people say, what's showing? And I'd be like, this sci-fi film. And some people would just be like, nah, hate sci-fi. And the thing they would go for would be very sort of simplistic and black and white and I don't want to say reassuring, but something they could understand and grasp hold of. But uh, in relation to The Matrix, it's funny that you should say that you had so much trouble because I was just listening to the commentary with Dr. Cornell uh, West and... Kim Wilbur, and they point out like when they open the door, Neo's room is one hundred and one, and it's like oh binary, uh one Neo, but it's also philosophy one hundred and one, sci-fi one hundred and one, action one hundred and one, like there's sociology one hundred and one. It's kind of an introductory film that then just spirals out into ever increasing complexity. But at its base, it's really, especially when you watch the. <gasps> sequels, the duality and simplistic nature that is presented in the first one, it becomes much more apparent how simple it is when they start going, eh, it isn't that simple. I think another reason why I was reminded of Terminator when I was reading, or especially Terminator 2 when I was reading the the story treatment, is that originally Neo was supposed to be a teenager. So this idea of him being a corporate cog in the later versions, I think that makes a lot more sense. And it's a lot easier, maybe just because I was older at the time, and especially because this is pre-bubble bursting for the internet industry. I want to say that was 2000, 2001. So in 1999, this whole idea of startup culture and the internet had been around, obviously, for years and years, but it was really starting, you know, Ben, you mentioned what is the matrix.com. This is one of those early attempts of marketing things through the internet, which was really super effective. I mean, you talk about, I mean, 99, you know, you did mention how it was, you know, the year that changed cinemas, uh, as the book title goes. And yeah, we were finally getting into marketing things through online trailers. It was such a big deal when the Phantom Menace trailer dropped. It was such a big deal when that original Spider-Man trailer dropped, the one that they eventually ended up pulling from uh, all forms of media because it had the Twin Towers in it. But just this whole idea of being able to utilize the internet in this way for marketing was one thing, but then also, yeah, actually making it so that people could relate to a Thomas Anderson and be like, oh yeah, because this is the same year that Office Space came out too. And it's hilarious for me watching Neo run from the agents in his cubicle farm, comparing that to Peter trying to hide from Lundberg in Office Space. I mean, it's basically the same scene, just a little bit different uh, weight and context to it. What the hell do they want from me? I don't know, but if you don't want to find out, I suggest you get out of there. How? I can guide you, but you must do exactly as I say. Okay. The cubicle across from you is empty. Wait, what if they... Oh, now. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Um, 
I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay. Yeah, and as I mentioned, Fight Club as well. It's uh, business culture, and then you get the offshoot child of all of these, Wanted, which fuses Fight Club and The Matrix. You know, some of the most important, powerful films have irony through and through in that this feels like, The Matrix feels like the end of the 20th century, even though it is so much looking forward to where we are about to go and were going. It's kind of a full stop on the way we were thinking about it in the 20th century. And I think that is also part of its power, that it's uh, the same way something like Cabin in the Woods, I, I truly believe, is the end of 20th century horror. It's a summarization of all of it into one form. And anything going backwards over that is just nostalgia and going backwards. I'm watching the 4K cleaned up, the texture of the film print, the texture of the effects is different to the sequels. It has this 20th century wholeness. Its power now, watching it 20 years later, is that even though that's over, we haven't separated from it yet. We're still plugged into that same way of thinking about the world, which is plugged into a way of thinking about the world from 100, 200, 300 years earlier. Well, you mentioned wanted and the idea of Trinity in that early treatment as well. Or I, I should stop calling it a treatment because it was actually a full script. It was uh, 136 pages, but I keep saying treatment just because of the script breakdown. It looks like a treatment and acts like one. In that, Trinity is this older-ish, not that much older, but older-ish woman that is there kind of reminded me of the Angelina Jolie character from Wanted, especially because James McAvoy, I mean, James McAvoy, until maybe he's, uh, you know, 60, 70 years old, he's going to look like a teenager. And so he feels like a teen in that. And he's got that whole, you know, the daddy issues and Wanted and all that. And it's like, okay, great. Um, But yeah, this whole idea of this sexy woman that is um you know in- introducing him to this much larger world which i'm glad that they kept in the matrix but then they ended up changing it which was also good that they made them not necessarily more equals she's actually a better hacker than neo is and that he's impressed with her having what broken into the irs database it's kind of very much a uh, a zero cool and acid burn type relationship here I definitely appreciate that maybe they're equals, but also she is a lot better and more well-versed. And I really do appreciate that the movie acknowledges that. Um, I like the fish out of water aspect to Neo. He's learning stuff, but I don't like that. It's, it, it's not over the top. I really don't like when someone just doesn't get it. He gets it quick, but he also has to be told. And he does rely on Trinity quite a bit throughout all of the films. And I I appreciate that while it may look like they're equal to us or even that, or to the outside person, or even that he's a better than her, he doesn't view it that way. And I, and I always appreciate that. We can go ahead and call Neo a Mary Sue, because that's totally what he is. He is that new person who's literally on board the ship and has all of the people explaining things to him. There's one conversation where, Almost everything that he says is a question. Squiddy, sweep it in quick. Squiddy? A sentinel. Killing machine designed for one thing. Search and destroy. Power of light. EMP. Armed. EMP. Electromagnetic pulse. Disables any electrical system in the blast radius. It's the only weapon we have against the machine. 
okay, Neo, just keep asking those questions, ground that audience, but you're such a, well, Kano's just incredibly likable, but his character is likable enough that we are following him and that we have seen him in that cubicle farm. We do know that he's trying his best. Okay, good. I'm following you, even though you're not necessarily incompetent. To your point, Christine, he does pick up very quickly, and it's not like, you know, he freaks out the first time he goes into the construct when Morpheus is laying all that information on him, but at least he manages to get in there and do things pretty right pretty quickly. It's not one of these, what the hell are you guys doing to me? Put me back in my my cell immediately type of uh, reactions that he gives. Well, even that freak out, the vomiting is interesting because it's kind of like an expulsion. It's not a freak out. He is literally, like, he's literally, his body is reacting and expelling something negative, some jam, some thing that is plugged into him, much like how they pull the, the bug out of him, that there's aspects of himself that need to be purged before he can uh, move on to this new stage of being human. They pull the bug out, he pulls the the feeding tube out, I think, when he's being reborn. I'm trying to remember there was an article that was just about <laughs> expulsion <laughs> in the Matrix. And I can't remember if the because there's more when he will spit blood later on. I'm trying to think if there's more vomit, but I don't think so. You know, obviously more vomit makes any film better. Everything in this film like connects to about three or four different uh, streams of philosophy and culture and history and everything. And it's just like, I, I'm, I might have to start my own podcast just to expel all of the stuff that I've learned in the last two weeks on this matrix stuff. But I, I found fascinating. I went, uh, the penny, there was a couple of penny drops in doing this. That I was like, Oh God, duh, sh- that's really obvious now that even, yeah, he's like, he's more Mary Sue than he is a cipher for the audience because Cypher is the cypher for the audience, who is a bad guy, which is actually another thing that's really awesome and remarkable about this film, because normally the cypher for the audience is a drag and a nuisance, and he is, but because he's the shit. Uh, of course, uh, Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, uh, uh, who's the villain in the real world who's done the deal with the agents to to be plugged back in, and I can't remember who it was because I've listened to too much philosophy, but one philosopher talking about the possibility of are we in a simulation or not believed that the vast majority of people would choose not to know. It probably was Baudrillard. It's just easier, uh, and there's no real reason to know that we're in the simulation because it only causes problems. And so he is actually the cipher for the majority, and he's the bad guy, so that's fun. I didn't really realize until last night just how often he's trying to screw stuff up. Like even that very first phone call that he has with Trinity before you even see Trinity well before you see Cypher that you can hear their voices uh, as the credits are starting to roll and that you hear that click on the line and, you know, we realize, oh, the agents have found them. And it's after you've seen the movie, if you dozen times it's like oh okay cypher is setting them up all right now i get it and that he's constantly trying to screw stuff up and that his his plan is a really good plan like he's very insidious when it comes to it like i didn't even realize until last night when i was watching it at one point after he has dropped his phone into the garbage can morpheus when he's 
kind of panicked now, realizing that the agents are coming, is like, give me your phone. And you see Joey Pants going through his pockets, you know, very theatrically. And then Trinity's the one that hands Morpheus the phone. It's like, oh, good covering there, Cypher, that you didn't have your phone on you, that it was still out in that garbage can. Believe people when they tell you who they are, because he says he's that he wants out, that he'd do anything to get back. His commitment to it is always um, realistically upsetting, too. He has so many times to stop and rethink it, and it's just all he wants. It's and it's really ugly. And yeah, like Ben said, he's obviously the, the mass audience, and it's just like, hey, don't do this. Oh, of course you're going to do this. And it leads to that the line by Switch has weirdly haunted me for 20 years, like it randomly will pop into my head for no reason, just to do with stuff in life. Not like this. Not like this. The way that she says it, it is one of the just single great performance moments ever. There's so just heartbreaking and horrifying and everything. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's an exchange between her and some Hercula who isn't even there. Ugh. The Switch character is very fascinating to me, and I went on a little quest to find out more about the character. So, no disrespect to Lana Wachowski, but she was saying in an interview, This is Lily, not Lana. The Matrix stuff was all, like, about the desire for transformation, but it was all coming from a closeted point of view. And so we had the character of Switch, who was, like, a character who would be, you know, a man in the real world or and then a woman in the Matrix. And, you know, that's both were <laughs> where our headspaces were. And so kind of saying like, hey, yeah, this was a trans narrative even before my brother and I really realized that we were trans. But then I went back through the old scripts and stuff. And first off, that whole thing of Switch being different gendered from one place to another wasn't in any of those scripts. And Switch actually was two characters for a while, one called Gizmo, who was the one that helped take the bug out of Neo. And then Switch was in the Matrix you know, after that, like we never come back to Gizmo. And I'm so glad that they changed that name because otherwise I'd just be thinking of Mogwai the entire time. <laughs> but, but then Switch is there and then Switch dies. It makes more sense and it's better narratively that Switch becomes that Gizmo character. And, you know, we get that immediate antagonism between them that she is the one that calls him Copper Top. And I'm like, okay, well, that's cool that she wants to protect herself and everybody else in that car by pulling the gun on him. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. I think it would be a better idea. And I, I can totally buy that at one point they wanted to have this whole gender swap type of thing. And especially because Switch is the only one, well, she's got the very like short haircut. She's the only one that wears white when they're outside in the Matrix, as opposed to everybody else who's wearing black. So she's already got this otherness to her. And I, I kind of wish that they had gone with that idea a little bit more, but you know, she is such a great character. And yeah, I, every time she dies, I'm just like, man, of all the people, like, go ahead, APOC. I don't care. I barely know that guy. Take him. Mouse. Okay. It's very surprising when Mouse dies because he is like the lovable scamp. But man, Switch was so cool. Yes. That actress Belinda McClory was in a film about the same time called Red Bull, I believe. 
Australian film. And that was quite well talked up at the time and is now entirely impossible to find just about. So I've missed it. It is on Plex.tv. So I just rewatched it the other night because, yeah, it was one of the first movies that was, it was like a kind of a shitty digital video quality, but I think it was a big deal that it was digital video at the time. Whether or not that trans element was early on with that character, I realized on my own rewatched this week that Smith, Agent Smith, is dead naming Neo continuously. Uh, it definitely has a different cultural context in 1999. It doesn't, it's not as loaded and doesn't have the same significance in that context, but it's dead naming by calling him Mr. Anderson and absolutely refusing to recognize that he is not that being that was in the Matrix. He is Neo. Uh, it's dead naming. And that was, that was quite. Interesting. I mean, I love the scene when Neo asserts himself and says, you know, the name's Neo. I'm like, all right, cool. Which could be incredibly cheesy when that happens, but it so isn't, especially because he, to your point, he dead names him, I think, four times in that scene. Like the first time we see him in that moment, he just comes in, Mr. Anderson. And then like they really make a point of him saying Mr. Anderson three more times before Neo finally asserts himself and shows that he can take on an agent. The name is used as a as violence. It's not it's not flippant. It's very direct. It's I am controlling you by calling you this. Something else that plays a little let's say differently in 2021. I mean, I think it was there when we saw it in 99 was the relationship between Cypher and Trinity. And especially when Cypher is not necessarily raping Trinity, but when he's on top of her and talking at her while she's completely incapacitated, I'm like, Oh, my skin's kind of crawling here. Cause I can see Cypher wanting to do things to her body just to have control. And it kind of is doing something to her body, but not that sexual, but it feels like it has those overtones to me. And I, it could just be because I'm an awoke asshole, but that, that's how I was reading it last night. Just like, Oh, this is kind of creepy cipher. Oh no. I, as, as a lady who has seen this movie um, a bunch of times, it's always there. It's always gross. It's always uncomfortable. He's fantastic, but the absolute worst. I mean, the way that he puts his body on um, Morpheus too, like he he hops onto him. Joey knows what he's doing there. There's a lot going on in that in that scene where he's talking to them, but they're not there. He has complete control over their bodies. And like talking about the most upsetting thing when when he kills Switch, um, it's awful. This th- he is lording what he he wants power, and he finally has it. And that brief moment, he has complete power over them. And what he chooses to do with it is so telling of that character. And also representative of a lot of the issues with uh, you know, people deciding on how others' bodies are governed by a supposed majority. It's very distanced. It's disconnected. It has nothing to do with the individuals. Um, and let's never forget, he's absolutely gross. All I see is redheads, blondes, brunettes. When he's looking at the Matrix code, it's like, yeah, he's driving at home. They're driving at home. <laughs> I do like that his name is Mr. Reagan, that we do find that out from Smith. I'm just like, okay, and this is 99, so and yeah. He wants we're, to be an actor? Yeah, I would make me somebody important, an actor. I'm like, okay, 
Well, you said before about the possibly hammy lines. There's so many terrible lines that instead of fist pumps, it's yes! And it's especially driven home watching the sequels because they, the second one, I think, does not land any of the hammy lines. I think the third one gets a couple of them. But it's like this film was synchronicity. Like, everything just worked. It's, it, they were on the right path. They were doing what they needed to do. And they were plugged into something. And I genuinely, like, this changed cultural consciousness. This is such a significant film in our recent human history. Uh, and I think it is because they hit that Jungian synchronicity that they were on the right path, that we needed to be thinking about this, we were ready to be thinking about this the way we're thinking about it. It just clicks. Uh, but it's also, like what you were saying before about the, the Asian action influence in the, the commentary. I, I didn't, didn't realise this. Do you know about the commentaries that they had done? Oh, I can talk about the commentaries, boy, oh boy. I, I haven't listened to enough of them. I'm going to go and listen to more because I listened to a, a, a half of the first one with the philosophers and it was Ken Wilber and Dr. Cornel West who appears in the second and the third film and how the, the Wachowskis uh, wouldn't do a commentary because they didn't want to present a dogmatic view on what it is or is not about, which is interesting that they knew they, they still did later but instead wanted critics and philosophers who did or did not like the films to do the commentaries. And who the critics are immediately turned me off, listen to that one, but I will one day put myself through that. But I hit the philosophers, and one of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, West says is that the Wachowskis are fantastic at presenting other cultures with respect, that it never feels like it's used, that it's casually chucked in, that it's, you know, stealing from it's like no they, they give them the space and that also ties in the that they talk a bit around that period in the commentary about it a lot of people thinking that this was a black film because they definitely are there's a lot more uh, black actors and non-caucasians than a lot of films of that era made by white people except for Quentin Tarantino and let's not go there um and then in the second and third one leans into that super heavily the, the the transitioning of the Wachowskis makes perfect sense from the Matrix films. Like, everything is about refusing singularity or monoism. It's about embracing plurality and difference and, and, and recognising the ability to change. And all of those aspects are built into all three films so brilliantly. Like, they match up as a, like a whole in ways that just you keep coming back to and digging down those layers and how one of the most fascinating things I found in my deep dive was how many philosophers really hate Isaac Newton <laughs> and think that he is a massive at massive fault for a lot of the shit we're in now because his theories were so mechanistic and very simple and quantum physics has blown a lot of that out of the water and saying that it's so much more ambiguous and complicated. But like, I didn't know that the, the, the person who created the free market theory was a massive Isaac Newton fan. Uh, and essentially the matrix is this battle between like a Nietzschean way of looking at reason as, uh, as an impossibility on which to build something new being that reason can only be based on what has come before 
uh, versus, you know, the, 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 that you have to, sorry, that you need to be able to have balanced faith and reason in order to create something new and to truly move forward versus this mechanistic way of thinking where, you know, the Kantian view of holding reason up as being the absolute. And we, that is in the first film, but obviously you don't get that until you start to get the architect who, yes, is an idiot and is meant to be a joke because he is reason and he thinks that he's the best versus the oracle who is faith, which is more presented in this film. And I think that's thinking about those aspects gave me a deeper appreciation of Morpheus's character because he is dogmatic, but his dogma is shifted into faith rather than reason. And that's not so clear in the first film. It becomes more clear in later films. Fortunately, it's not, it never pans out as a negative for him or the characters. But it's like you need this character of Morpheus to have so much faith, almost without reason, in order to start shifting the balance back against this mechanistic system of, you know, the, the, the agents who it's always this way, it is always these things. But also... Morpheus can't beat an agent. He doesn't have that. And it's Neo's path is to find that balance between reason and faith, which is there is no spoon. To know that there is a spoon, to have faith that there could be no spoon, and to recognize that both states can exist simultaneously. And it is like that is why then he is able to start bending reality because it is just a simulation we have governance over it talking about morpheus and his faith i found it interesting that in some of the earlier drafts of the script that neo is actually the sixth person that morpheus is taking to the oracle that he's had five previous padawans and they have all taken on agents they've all died and i think that they all and this comes actually from earlier in the film when cypher when cypher does make a lot of good points to your point when he says you know wow that's a lot to lay on a person who basically just was born is that they are supposed to be the savior character and he talks a little bit more about how there were these five others and that they all tried to take on agents and they all died. And you're led to believe that they all bought into the idea that they were the saviors. And so they had no problem going up against an agent because they were all pumped up. Whereas Neo, I think it's very important that he doesn't think that he's the one that he's given that information, false information by the Oracle to say, yeah, no, you're not it. And he, and gives him the information though about the sacrifice that he's going to have to make if he wants Morpheus to live. You know, one of you is going to die. Figure it out. But that he comes away from that and much more humbled and is just like, yep, no, I'm not the one. I figured I wasn't going to be the one, but he does have this opportunity to make things right by saving Morpheus later thus proving that he is the one. I was like, that's a very smart thing. And I, I kind of like the idea of there being these other people before. It's not necessary to the story. I'm glad that they dumped it. But it was kind of a, a neat idea that Morpheus has tried this so many times and that Neo is just yet another one that he's bringing to the Oracle. 
it adds interesting additional context, but I think that all still is there, even without explicitly saying five other people did this. That's probably one of the reasons why the Oracle is easily my favorite character. That's easily my favorite scene. Um, and she just gets better in the second one, in my opinion. But I, I don't even think that to say that she lies to him, I get that she does, but she just says, you already know. And he says, I'm not it. She didn't need to tell him anything. His That doubt was already within him for further proving the point that like he wasn't ready to know that. And he was going to act the way he knew he should, whether he thought he was the one or not. And that goes to his character. It's all really interesting character stuff. And I think that anybody that doesn't, that writes off the Neo character is just like this God type of analog, this Jesus analog. I get why you would just be like, that's boring. He's Superman. But I think there's just a lot more there. He is a an interesting, driven person from the beginning. And being the one doesn't necessarily even matter to him in that first movie. You're so absolutely right. Like, it's so much more complicated than that. And he's not a God at all. When someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! He's just the one, and it's the one who can bring about change. That doesn't mean he's a god, even with those powers. I'm a god, I'm not the god. That's the big question I have, and it's interesting... Well, it relates to a big question that I have, and it's interesting to know that the that Morpheus had, theoretically had five before, because... That implies Morpheus's journey, which is something we don't really get and is a problem with the sequels. And I think that knowing that maybe would change some of how the readings of the sequels play out with his character. Um, but you know, we do learn later that this, there were six previous ones, incarnations of this system, because the system, you know, the system recognizes that people, require change even if we don't like it and so it builds change into the system to further envelop the prison that is the matrix and ourselves i wonder what the difference is between neo and the other ones and there is a line in this that points to a possible suggestion and that's morpheus saying that they don't normally bring people out of the matrix when they passed a certain age and I wonder if that is the difference between Neo and any possible previous ones, either in this version of The Matrix or previous versions of The Matrix, that his journey is harder, that he has more against him and believes less in himself, and so he has to grow more. That would heavily imply, based on a lot of philosophies and Eastern mysticism and spirituality, the difference. Because this is definitely, you know, the sequels definitely state there is a difference here. And people keep saying to Neo, even in the first one, like, wait, what? You're not meant to be able to do this. Even if even if those people know or don't know, there's still this kind of reaction that, oh, no, he is different. And this sort of fixed way of being, what he has to overcome, the flip side, the, the, the inverse of that would be Morpheus having to still keep trying after he has failed five times. And going back to the extra Matrix <laughs> aspects, the, the second Renaissance Part 1 and 2, the second Renaissance Part 1 and 2 being in the Animatrix, and that tells a brief history of 
the creation of machines, their rise to sentience, and then the war that follows that leads to the Matrix. And it states in that the machines were created by us, but they were pure and uncorrupted. And that it's actually was our engaging with them and our vanity and corruption that brings about the war and brings them to fight back against us. And so if all these other ones know that they're the one, then that introduces an aspect of vanity, which then would lead them to not be able to overcome the self. And when you start getting into Jewish philosophy, which definitely has a lot of connections through this uh, in various strange and unusual, interesting ways, uh, a lot of Jewish philosophy in relation to how we about the self and other, like Martin Buber's I and thou and the different kind of relationships in that um, is very, very prominent in sci-fi to dealing with AIs and being and pretty much all. I think it's Levin, Emmanuel Levinus, I think, was writing about the, to, to, the meaning uh, of the meaning of life, to simplify it, or to be a good person is to serve the other and to recognize the other. And if there's any vanity of like, oh, no, I am the one, which there is no one because everything in this film points to trinities. <laughs> it's, and as I said earlier, it's against singularities. It's against monoism. It's about pluralism uh, and such. It's, it's, that's the really hugely complex play that it's, it's like, how the hell did they pull that off in a big, silly sci-fi action film? It's like, this this film is actually a simulation of a Hollywood action film. And I think that that's part of why it works and why the sequels don't, because it's actually an essay on everything, whereas the other ones are essays, uh, simulations of essays that are actually big action films. <laughs> you mentioned the idea of this being a, a black film, and I find... Morpheus's introduction of the Matrix to Neo to be very interesting, the way that he's talking about how he's born into slavery and really calls the the construct that the humans are in, they are all slaves to the system. And I found that very interesting to have a African-American actor telling this to essentially a white guy. I was like, oh, this is kind of a, a interesting turn of events. Then it feeds into the master-slave dialectic that even the masters are slaves, uh, technically, not in that same historical context or meaning, but that all of us bound together are slaves to each other, which goes back to the self and the other recognition. And oh. Well, having to kick out the other agents so that Agent Smith can say to Morpheus, you know, I'm trapped here and I want to get out. So, yeah, he's a slave to the system as well. And I really appreciate his little speech to Morpheus about that. And then that kind of, you know, again, that abuse of Morpheus's body. We're talking about that with Cypher and, and Morpheus and Trinity. And here we have Agent Smith with this whole thing of putting his hand on Morpheus's head and taking the sweat off and sticking his fingers up Morpheus's nose. Like, wow, that's uh, that's a little something as well. To get out of that scene, uh, Morpheus breaks chains. Like it's, it's, it's all, it's all there. And I think it's very effectively done. It's very respectfully done. And I, I really appreciate Lawrence Fishburne's performance in this. It's, he hits a lot of different levels. He's very serious and very intense because I mean, that's what it calls for, but he's also extremely welcoming and likable and hopeful. Um, Lawrence Fishburne severely underrated, I still think, but he's fantastic in this. 
you were talking about the commentary before, and just before we move too far away from that, the version that I watched, there were three commentaries. I think there might be a fourth with Don Davis talking about the music. But so there's the one with Cornell West and Ken Wilber. There's also uh, one from um, editor Zach Steinberg, I think it is, Carrie Ann Moss, and then John Gaeta, who's the special effects supervisor. And then the other commentary with critics, Todd McCarthy, John Powers, and David Thompson, I had to turn that sucker off within just a few minutes because they're just slapping themselves on the back like they're the smartest guys in the room. They're chortling to themselves about how they're getting the follow the white rabbit references being from Alice in Wonderland. And are we in a, a culture where we can expect Neo and the audience both to know Alice in Wonderland? Or is this a private aside for three guys sitting in a room yeah. like us you gotta be fucking kidding me people didn't get that i mean come on man like if you're gonna hand them a reference to alice in wonderland i mean they they say that alice in wonderland right out about like alice tumbling down the rabbit hole later on i'm like for fuck's sake guys you are not that intelligence. I, like I hate that I was right about that without even listening to it. <laughs> my, I, my, my friend was listening to a bit of it with me and, and she said, uh, uh, what, what, why would critics want to talk about a film they hate for two hours? I'm like, because critics don't just love listening to themselves for two hours. <laughs> the cultural references. Uh, I hate nostalgia and I hate empty references and none of them are empty. And I think they tie back to that 101 aspect, the introductory, because the Cornell, Cornell West and Ken, Ken Wilbur are both saying, like, when you were watching this, like, even as they start telling you what the Matrix is, you have no idea what the Matrix is. Like you, you were saying, Christine, like, the film doesn't make sense. You have to take a leap of faith to go with it until it starts to put itself together enough that your brain can go, click, or whoa. And it's like those... The images where you can see, you know, do you see the rabbit head or do you see the flying goose or whatever it is? But all of those references are ways of helping the audience. So fuck those critics, but they are where to help them because they give them the context. They're like, you have no idea what's going on, but you know what Alice in Wonderland is. You have no idea what's going on, but you know what White Rabbit is and what that references in relation to drug culture and the shift of consciousness and all of those elements. You know, even the TVs, like the old fashioned TVs are like the old fashioned TVs of when they first came in, when it had a very, more Marshall McLuhan kind of context than it does now. It's all of those cultural references, both clues and introductory chapters. When you go back, they don't sting. They don't hurt. They don't go like cringe because you can start to say, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, it's good. You're getting it. And I think it's interesting that there's such a lack of cultural references in two and three. That is because that's not, they're not the introduction anymore. We're past that. We've gotten through it. We're into everything. And also, even, yeah, the, the, the as you're saying, the martial arts scenes, you know, they're not references. They're in the style of, but it's not some white guy doing the choreography. It's Duan Wu Ping, one of the most incredible choreographers ever and the maker of my absolute favorite martial arts film, Dreadnought. Just an absolute artist. And so you, they've, the things are there because of the meaning they have and who they are, not because they're a cultural reference to define inclusion or exclusion on whether you get it or not. 
That's completely right. It really stuck out to me this time because as films age, when the things rely too heavily on cultural pop culture references, they they don't age well always. And you go, I don't get that or that's not relevant anymore. But I think what's so smart about this is that the, any pop culture references are kind of used as like a universal shorthand to get you to an idea. And that, I mean, that shows how well the Wachowskis did it. It has stood the test of time. You still get that. And it's still is this like, oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. Great, cool. It's not just this write-off. Like, they I mean, they reference The Wizard of Oz. It's, you're not in Kansas anymore. That tells us something more than just a quote from The Wizard of Oz would. And and I, I appreciate that. I think this is a really tight script, and I think it's so deliberately made. I love the second and third one, but I feel like there's some of that missing. I, everything hits so hard and everything's so deliberate in this movie. I, I don't know that I can say that about the other two. Even as a defender and somewhat lover of two and three, they're not entertainment, they're essays. <laughs> and you have to bring a lot to the table to be getting a lot out of that. The Even the, the Jesus reference relates to that and what you were saying before, Christine, about uh, him not being a god. It's like, no, the, 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 the Jesus references, they're not as like a metaphor or analogy, but again, as a guide. And if there is meant to be a Jesus connection like uh like as a, like it a metaphor then it's more about who and what he went through if he really did exist and that journey is a really shitty one <laughs> that ends really badly for him and that's more the metaphor the having to let go of the self and to recognize the sacrifice that has to be given up for others to also be able to change What's well, nice too that it's not just Neo making sacrifices, that Morpheus makes a sacrifice. He's like, you know, you guys go on without me. I'll take on these agents. We just need to get Neo out of here. This is before Neo knows that he can take on these agents, that he can, when the time comes, he won't have to dodge bullets. We, he is not to that point yet. And that Morpheus makes that sacrifice and then. Neo repays him in kind. It's, you know, it's so nice that it's not just the white man's burden here with Neo being the guy who has to do everything. Just like, okay, yeah, okay, I'm done being a Mary Sue. Now I'm going to show everybody just how incredibly powerful I am. That it takes so much for him to get to that final level that he has to basically die first before he can come into his own. That he can do some things to that point. We've even seen him when he's fighting with Morpheus in the construct that he is starting to move like an agent, that he has some of these powers, but it really takes him a long time before he can fully do everything, before he can actually see the world in code and then be able to, you know, use his hacker skills. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. He can use those and, and actually now bend the reality to suit him, literally bend the reality. I love when he does that little muscle thing and the whole walls just move because he's moving. The mind, the body, and the spirit, that trinity that underlies so much of the first film, that trinity is present a lot. I pointed out in the commentary from the philosophers that, that really how it relates to, um, I think, Buddhism, if I remember correctly, of that, the trinity in Buddhism of mind, uh, spirit, body, body, spirit, mind. And this is 
when uh, Agent Smith is first interrogating Neo and he has all the paperwork and he says to Neo, you live two lives, Mr. Anderson. And it's like, no, he actually has three lives. He has Neo, which is, I would say is his spirit. He has Mr. Anderson, which is his mind. And he has his existence as a battery, which is his body. And the Matrix keeps all three separated and works hard to keep them all separated and it works harder to destroy the spirit. And he's working towards shedding his mind and in his death, I believe, that is the death in the Matrix is the a kind of a releasing of that form of his mind. And I was thinking about how do they match up and for me I think that is how they match up because – the spirit is free. It is who we choose to be. It is our individuality. Uh, the mind is easily bound to the wheels of reason, which is business work, capitalism, economy. And the body, well, the body is the really hard part that we tend to forget and leave behind if we get stuck on two or the other two too much. And so the ultimate journey he has to go on is to bring all three together and I, one of the reasons why I'm open to part four is because um, I don't know that they really get there with that. I think there's still some exploring to do in that realm because there's still a lot of division, even as things are tied up along the way in these films. Well, that the movie begins and ends at Heart Oh the City Motel is kind of telling as well. And that Agent Smith shoots him in the heart at the end it's like oh that's kind of nice that we are making that sacrifice of the body at that point or the release of the spiritual to your point i also like you're talking about the false dichotomy that agent smith gives him and i love that just i think two scenes before the previous scene is when neo's boss is talking to him and gives him almost the exact same thing the time has come to make a choice mr anderson Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forth, or you choose to find yourself another job. One of these lives has a future, and one of them does not. You are getting those reinforcement of ideas through that, and frankly, I don't think it's any coincidence that I think the boss actually looks a little bit like Hugo Weaving. So you have this kind of the authority figures in his life all share some similar features. Well, okay. Here's a question for both of you. How many people do you think are actually programs? Are the police programs or are they people? It's, it's an interesting thought. And I did, I did think that the last night when I was watching it, something similar. I, I think a lot more than you would expect, but I don't think you can say that all the cops, all the FBI, everybody in a point of authority is a program. I think, I, I don't think it would, you can't, you can't put it that far, but I definitely think more than, I mean, the second one gets into that. We start to see more and more who these people we might have thought were real people, um, aren't. Uh, so to assume that everybody we see is is a person in the matrix in the first one, uh, it, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, agreed. I think it is fluid. It's not all of them, but it isn't just the agents. Because I was thinking about that in relation to people or beings, I say that say that's impossible about either Neo or somebody else performing some action or doing some deed. And the first person that says it, or first being that says it, is a police officer who's chasing after Trinity and uh, an agent. 
And that's what led me to go, huh, I don't, I, I can't say. I don't know. He represents um, the power and force of the state. And the state is certainly a facade of the system, <laughs> which is the larger thing that created the Matrix and runs it. But the Matrix is designed to allow people to feel like they are living. So you can't deny if somebody wants to be a police officer. So there must be police officers who are people, if not maybe all of them. Because even they say that the, the agents can take over anything within the Matrix, so they could theoretically take over a lower program and a person. It does make you feel a little different about that big massacre at the end when they go into the building and have that major action set piece. Because I'm just like, are they just shooting all these people and then they're going to be unplugged and liquidated and fed to other people uh, in that big body farm? I guess so. It's kind of not nice, but you're just so in the moment of like, oh, this is cool. You know, you just really see bloodshed, but you do see a lot of people being taken down by a hail of bullets. I mean, I love some of those shots that you get of just the shell casings falling and falling, especially when Neo is shooting at the building and you get that rain of shell casings coming down from the helicopter. But you get that a lot throughout that whole scene. It's just really remarkable to to see that whole action set piece put together not for nothing but it very early in that film we are told it's a war it's a war movie so i mean there are going to be casualties in war i was i was clicking around reading a couple articles uh, and people kept mentioning that and i was like i'm surprised how much that potentially bothers people the idea that that these innocents would would lose their lives but i mean that that it is a, it is a war for the future. So so I guess I'm kind of cool with it. It's fine. Having listened to all the philosophy I have in the last two weeks, I can tell you that that issue, people having that issue, points to failures on both left and right of politics. But uh, <laughs> uh, if it soothed your morals or ethics any, I would argue that the buildings in which the prime programs operate are probably entirely peopled by other programs because they are would be more reliable based on the system because the system uh, is all about variables and which variable offers the best outcome and having your super secret building same as how in the third film there's the totally cringeworthy goth club scene and they all the Merovingian seems to have them all operate under his direction and as I all I the person I was watching with said, Oh the but these could these will aren't these people? And I was like, what makes you think they're people? To me, I would assume that he, you know, we've already heard in the second film that the building he inhabits is loaded with C4 so he can blow it and escape and get out easily. These other older exiled programs would build up as much security around them as possible so it makes sense that the system when the matrix would also do the same for itself so i would say that they are just other programs but if they are just programs do they not also still have uh, value and uh deserve the chance to exist I guess it was that it was 1999 and the internet was just really starting and like how I mentioned, uh, it was really coming to the fore now because 
you mentioned politics. And of course, the first thing that goes through my brain is the whole red pill thing and how all of these a-holes out there are just like, oh, yeah, take the red pill. I've red pilled, blah, blah, blah. And they use it as shorthand to be like, they're really aware of what's going on as opposed to, you know, the rest of us that are living in this happy dream world, right? Because we don't think about how corrupt the system is and how awful things are. We're just, you know, we're, we're the ones that are living in our pink goop someplace and being taken care of, uh, all watched over by machines of loving grace, right? Ben, you mentioned uh, Fight Club, and it's like, okay, Fight Club feels like it was kind of ground zero for a lot of the men's rights advocate stuff. And it's like, okay, we had movies before and we had VHS so we could watch these movies over and over and over again. Is the internet that missing piece that then helps take these a-holes and and give them a a bigger voice because there are many a-holes and they're all thinking the same things or all reading the same online forums going like, oh yeah, totally take the red pill. There's even a movie that's coming out within the next couple of weeks called Red Pill. And I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sakes, man. It's, It's horrible shorthand for a bunch of terrible people. Well, I think with any art, you can, you know, obviously take what you want from it. And I am of the belief that people watched this movie and some people didn't understand it. And they walked away with ideas that maybe weren't what the filmmakers had intended. And then, sure, the Internet made it easier for them to find each other. I think that people have been misunderstanding movies since movies existed. I mean, there are people that think some John Hughes movies are wildly romantic, while I think they're incredibly offensive. So, I mean, we all walk away with different ideas, but I think, Mike, I have to agree with you that, yeah, just centralizing voices and giving a few loud people a big platform is is to blame. And hello, Internet. All of this, it all ties back to what The Matrix is about. (laughs) Because it is Nietzsche again. I keep coming back to Nietzsche later. I just rewatched The Good Place and I was like... Nietzsche, my boy, definitely misinterpreted, definitely not a Nazi, funnier than people realize. That's why I have to say that out every time I've said Nietzsche to somebody. Along with then Baudrillard arguing that the failure of grand narratives being God and state and whatever else, family, leaves a chasm, an absence, a hole. Capitalism cannot fill that. It fills it with consumerism, is what Baudrillard said. Uh, the, and then what is happening through these kind of things is that our media is becoming increasingly complex in easily accessible ways. I've been fascinated about this. I've always been fascinated by how much like the church hated the Gutenberg press because it allowed them to print Bibles easily, which took the gateway of knowledge away from the church and put it into everybody's home. And that was the worst thing under the sun, whereas now it's like you fart and you hit a Bible, they're all over the place. This is a similar kind of thing, and it goes back to what some people were arguing about, that cinema and TV was bad because the masses, quotation marks, would be easily ingesting stuff that was made easily digestible and they wouldn't be thinking about it enough. And it's like, well, that's not the problem. It's it's a symptom of a different problem. But it's kind of what happened because even Hollywood, in the way that it told these stories, 
They were grand narratives. They were simplified. You certainly had lots of filmmakers who were hiding meta-narratives within them to get around censorship and cultural wars and such, but they still were relatively fixed, and especially in how they were told and with act structures that were simplified and relatively simple morals and meanings. And then you start to get these meta-narratives, which, you know, as I said, I just in my tiny little bit of research, I could just about do a podcast lasting years on the first Matrix. These meta-narratives are huge, and without a grand narrative stitching it together that's also stitching us together into something, they spiral out. And because we're pattern creatures, features of pattern that our brains are designed to like find patterns and recognize things, we're grabbing all this stuff and putting it together in some whatever way that we happen to our, our life has led us to our worldview. And then you introduce the internet, which is then like pumping all of that into an amplifier and cranking it to 111. And it's like, yeah, we've driven ourselves completely insane. And it's all very apparent why. After they've taken over, or as they're taking over, the machines really take on a more insect appearance. I mean, there are the squids, which I know are not insects, but this whole idea of the the caretakers of the humans and their pods, that very spider-like creature that is there, this kind of biotech, but then really catering it towards creatures that already exist, but not human, you know, though we do get the programs that are very human, but uh, yeah, having the, the idea of these uh, animals or, or insects that are, you know, basically in charge, I thought it was kind of a, a neat way to go when it came to d- the design. I mean, the design of the entire movie is fantastic, but the design of those squids and spiders, I thought was really cool. Yeah, well, uh, humans are not a good design. <laughs> My back hurts. Bugs in the software. There's all these kind of analogies and connection and colonies. Um. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the actual bug in Neo's stomach, which to me looks a lot like a shrimp. It's very primordial as well. One of the things to me that keeps Neo from God status is he's just stage one of the next step. Same how as when we built the first computers, they weren't a godlike being they were just the first step and there's this idea of cultural exchange and also infection that flows through all of the matrix film we have the cultural exchange of martial arts and things like that but you also have what starts to change things really drastically is that the exchange of something alters previously fixed things in ways that are unpredictable. We don't have to say the C word without getting a lot of context for that kind of thing happening right now. It's not as present in this film, but it's connected to all of them. The The way that when Neo touches the mirror and it starts to swarm over him like a gel is pretty much identical to how Agent Smith infects and takes over other beings in the later films. The possibility that develops in later films between this infection state between the machine digital world and the real world, which we're also experiencing in our current reality of this timeline. (laughs) But in that exchange, something is always given and something is always taken. 
that I think is part of the problems of the sequels, but also part of their strength is that Neo is lessened by what has happened to him. He is stripped down and stripped apart when he infects Agent Smith and goes into him something changes in Smith and he is altered, but something is also altered and changed in Neo. And that the in the second film, when he meets the architect, Neo meets the architect and is given the choice between the reset, him and his group of friends are all fine, they restart the clock to zero and the Matrix begins with its base point between before it starts to rattle too much apart. Or he goes back to save Trinity and the war ends and they're going to wipe out humans and screw this. What the architect being entirely based on reason and what has happened before, it can only be that choice that Neo makes of the self, of choosing to save himself, to save his friends, bugger everything else. Instead, he makes the choice to go back. And in going back, I think that is the act. That's the real, that's, as I said before, like, there's a question about why Neo might be actually different in the first one. But in the second one, that is a definite difference that no one has ever done that. And so in coming back from the source, he is part of him is infected by the source, which then starts to infect into his body, which then causes the weird crossover between the unplugged Matrix and unplugged Neo in the third one. And that comes back again to what I was saying about the Second Nations Part 1 and 2, that it was our own infections, infectious uh, corruption and vanity that infected the machines that caused them to turn on us. And so there's been this perpetual exchange. And that to me is... I was neither here nor there on the Oracle, Christine, but I've definitely, like... After digging through all this stuff, I'm more like, okay, yeah, okay, I get what's, I, I'm digging her a lot more. I love the character, but I was sort of like, what is, what is going on here? I get it's meant to represent sort of some mysticism and spirituality, but I wasn't quite there. But it's like she, her role is to be disruption. And that goes back to like the, the, the possibility of something unknown happening. And it's her role to essentially create an infection in, a program at some point that then alters it all. But you can't do it directly, otherwise the architect will erase it. Completely random to all this is a discussion I'm having recently where someone told me that we now believe that uh, life evolved out of the hot air vent, volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean. And it was the pushing and pulling of the motion combined with the heat and the cold of those oppositional forces that created life single cell organisms and then we start splitting and multiplying out like that and so i think that's part of the reason why the totally long roundabout way of answering your question they are insect-like because they are at an early stage evolution we have created them super advanced because they are our children and they are an extension and reflection of ourselves but they are early on in their evolution and are, whether they know it or not, mirroring the way that we evolved and making the same mistakes that we made. I've avoided talking about the sequels, and I'll talk more about those a little bit later, but I just wanted to add here that I guess that makes sense because of that 
big one that we see at the end with the baby face because it's a baby. You look a baby face, huh? You're right. It's not as advanced as uh, a fully mature human. But it speaks with the voice of an adult because we have given it that voice. What do you guys think about the woman in red and that whole plot with uh, Mouse? Why didn't he just give her a name? Because he's a man? <laughs> that signed picture, and it says the from the woman in red. Like, call her Vanessa or something. She could give her a name. I don't know. I don't really have any strong feelings either way. I wish I could say, like, it's creepy. I don't like it. Or I think it's wholesome or whatever. I don't, I don't really care. I just... I don't care about that character. I don't like him. <laughs> I second that. I don't have much to say about that. I, I watch that scene and I see Sydney and I think more about Sydney than I do that character. <laughs> it's 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 such a weird. Maybe that's it. It's, it's a fake scene. What? What do you mean, Sydney? That's shot in Chicago. That whole movie's set in Chicago. This I am from Chicago. Is that where it's meant to be? Oh, okay. Of course. Lake and Waba. And you see the, the his boss has a, a big poster up on his office wall that says Chicago. Because that's what you do is you put up pictures of the city in which you could just as easily turn your head to the left and look outside and see that same skyline. And that the phone book that says City Phone. The city is as real as the one in Dark City. Well, it's the same city. <laughs> it is, I always found it fascinating. It says a lot about Australia that the first two films that were made in the new Fox Studios in Sydney were Moulin Rouge and Dark City, which are both reimagined past places that don't actually exist. And The Matrix fits that as well. Sydney was also, of course, Metropolis. Uh, in Superman Returns, Superman, who gives a, um, it, I, I love, I do love the fact because I do not like Sydney that it brilliantly represents fake places. It's constructed. It's an experiment that didn't work and it matches these places perfectly. Uh, it's a great backdrop of a character for being nothing. Sort of like how the woman in red is in that context. She's, She's got a lot more character than a lot of films give people with dialogue. <laughs> From what I understand, the rooftop chase that happens, those rooftops are actually recycled from Dark City. That That's the same set that they were using. It's been a long time since I've seen Dark City. Unlike Roger Ebert, I didn't fall head over heels in love with that film because I kind of saw all the twists coming before they actually happened. But it was an interesting earlier version of The Matrix. And, you know, we talked about the 13th floor on the show before. Uh, Existence was, I think, right around the same time as well. So it was kind of a, a, a neat time where we were really questioning reality. I've, uh, there's a pretty good book about The Matrix, though oddly the, the author keeps calling Switch Shift. And I'm like, wait a second, where did that come from? And I look through all the old scripts. I'm like, did you just fuck up? Because there's no place that Switch is ever called Shift. Anyway, he was making a point about how there are some similarities between, well, Johnny Mnemonic and this one. I think it's mostly the Keanu Reeves connection, but the uh, Strange Days, the uh, Catherine Bigelow film and this. And I did find it funny that the equipment that you wear on top of your head when you're recording memories is called a squid. So I was like, oh, OK, well, that's kind of a nice little thing over here. And then the idea of the I can't remember the rapper's name that's in strange days that it's very Rodney King-esque, the video that they have that's recorded by the squid. And then you've got the scene at, 
can't remember if that's at Heart of the City Motel or a different place where all of the cops are falling on Morpheus and beating him up with uh, their nightsticks and, and just beating the shit out of him from that overhead shot. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, this was uh, very much what it was at the time and still is, unfortunately. I'm a big fan, big fan of Dark City. The director's cut is better. It does just, like, tweak a couple little things that are just make it smoother. And uh, But I was thinking about that today because I had a little list of films that were like that and how they are very different at what The Matrix is doing. The Dark City is the one that's probably closest, I think, because it is, um, I think, more about meaning and identity uh, and on a larger scale um, because it ties a bit more into the ethics of are we in a simulation that if you are creating a simulation, do you owe it to the beings within it to not make their lives hell? Which is a whole other thing about that. That's a political poll of it doesn't matter whether we're living in a simulation or not, because we can control everything and we could change everything, but we don't in the real world. But for me, Existence, it was actually really enlightening thinking about all this and Existence, because I know that at the time it got attacked a lot for just being, a Matrix ripoff or something, and it was just like, even at the time, it was like, yeah, not not really, guys. But now, looking back on it, A, it's actually a comedy uh, through and through, uh, but B, again, Cronenberg ahead of the curve massively because Existence makes a lot more sense now that it's about how we do or do not cope with drastically shifting realities and the technology and games and all that has nothing really to do with that core meaning which is it's, it's, it's definitely more narrow than The Matrix, but very significant. So there was definitely there was some weird juju going on at the end of the 90s of reality and meaning, and we kind of lost it a bit. Like a lot of these questions sort of they're being asked in weird ways that kind of just, just feel more self-serving than anything. Uh, and again, why I'm really I'm here for the, the next one, and I rewatched Cloud Atlas last night after rewatching the Matrix trilogy, and that's a film which I remember cheering a little when it was like cannibalism, yes, and it wasn't just because I'm a cannibalism weirdo, <laughs> it because the Matrix, the Wachowskis, the Wachowskis have always been making films about processes of objectification. Uh, it just took them that long to actually make a film that involved literal cannibalism because that's essentially what the uh, Matrix, when you really boil it down, is it's just it, Morpheus holds it up. We are this, a battery. We are completely objectified so that we are nothing more than a power source. Even cannibalism might not be as strong a form of objectification, has more meaning than that. Uh, you know, speed race is the same thing. It, it's over and over again they've been doing these processes of objectification and the struggle against that. But the Matrix just nails it so perfectly that, it, you know, it's even about overcoming your own conception of the objects around you in order to better engage with them and make the most out of the reality you exist in. I've been reading a lot of Octavia Butler books recently, and this rewatch, it really struck me how much uh, Octavia energy the Matrix trilogy has, uh, specifically uh, the Parable of the Sower and uh, Lilith's Brood. 
uh, trilogy. So if anybody wants to hit me up on Twitter and tell me if I'm right, <laughs> because I just was like, this is swapping of, it's just, it's just very similar to that. The way that the, that Octavia um, approaches a savior character in both of those books. There's essentially a savior character at the heart of each one. And, and I found this, the way that Neo is represented to be very close to that, which was interesting because you don't usually get a save a nuanced savior who makes mistakes and who isn't perfect. And, and there's other stuff too, like the trading of, of technology and to further things and adapting and changing and not being able to stay set in cycles. And I just found it really interesting. I, and I guess maybe that's why this is such an enduring story, the way those are enduring stories and not just a throwaway sci-fi idea. I'm going to be audience surrogate here and say I don't know who Octavia Butler is, so can you fill me in a little bit more, Christine? She is a fantastic sci-fi writer. Um, she's sadly passed uh, at this point, but she wrote um, uh, wonderful, wonderful books. M- my favorite is is Parable of the Sower, which is essentially a trilogy of, of books about a woman who the, the world kind of ends apocalyptically and she wants to revive things and bring it to space bring the future of of the world of of uh, us of humans to space and this the matrix trilogy has felt very much like that to me this watch through i i found that really interesting there's an there's a there's a nature and an organic feeling to octavia's work that i think the matrix kind of nudges into and that's why i'm interested to see the fourth one i want to see how it deals with nature and in, in rebirth and in, in these now, especially like with what we've seen things uh, kind of been, you, you said it a little bit, like we had these ideas and they had these great ideas and these movies that people seem to latch onto. And then we just stopped the conversation. And I would like to see how uh, the conversation picks back up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realize until just this week that um, is a Lily, Wachowski, who's not taking part in making Matrix Resurrections. I looked up why, and she just said that the time had passed for her. She didn't want to return to that. It had, like, going over old territory, and there had been a lot of things that happened around the time of coming up with the Matrix 4 ideas and her going her own way with her own things, and I was like, that's completely understandable. Definitely don't want somebody going back over territory they feel like they've already addressed. Watching Cloud Atlas, my question to her would be, was it because you said it all in Cloud Atlas? Because I feel like Cloud Atlas does succeed to where the Matrix sequels fail in doing the same, a lot of the same ideas and themes. But other than that, yeah, there has been a real dearth of, of connecting with these kinds of ideas. And the Matrix, as I said, kind of marks the point it kind of stops and even the sequels indicate that because watching them all closely together even just the texture of it as soon as they open you're like oh this is a digital versus analog uh, it, it, yeah for matrix it's not analog as such even though it's 35 mil but it feels more of that realm and then two and three are like okay this is 21st century the technology the textures have changed but like i was saying before it's still at stage one it's not they're finishing ideas they had in the last century that don't quite match here. And so it's like, yeah, come back and have another swing at it. 
And on top of that, bringing in, uh, is it David Williams, I think mean, the guy who wrote Cloud Atlas, that he is involved, I think that's his name, uh, that he's involved in it is like, yes, because I don't know if you know, but he's recently uh, translated a book with his wife written by, it's the only book written by a non-verbal autistic person. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
That's right. We are back and talking about The Matrix. And I remember one of the biggest criticisms of The Matrix was that it was just too overstylized. And the first time we see Morpheus, it's dark. He's wearing sunglasses. We see him in sunglasses throughout so much of it, but it's only when he's in The Matrix. When he's out of The Matrix, everybody looks a lot different, right? Even Switch. And then you get into The Matrix and everybody starts to look really cool. You know, you get Trinity with hat and leather outfits. Even Cypher looks really cool. Mouse is trying his best. You get that awesome, like, camera rotating around the phone and the music going. And then everybody there in that tableau of like, okay, we're here to kick ass. Again, Neo isn't in his sunglasses in that moment. It's, it takes a long time for Neo to finally put on the sunglasses. It isn't until he goes and rescues Morpheus that he finally is in that garb that we're familiar with, with the, the long duster, the sunglasses, just looking really super cool. He's able to now start to really move like the agents do. He's able to dodge those bullets. He gets his bullet time in that moment. You know, now he is like, to almost to Trinity's level here because he he tries to dodge bullets and he gets tagged a couple times. But I like that it's not just about the style, that there's actually a purpose behind that, that there's the whole idea. I mean, the sunglasses, especially Morpheus's sunglasses, tell such a story. And I love that how his sunglasses in so many scenes are individual. Like you can see different things on the right lens than the left lens. And again, that whole dichotomy thing, the red pill, the blue pill, those kind of things, seeing the different paths that Neo could take, that you see him not taking the blue pill and you see him reaching for the red pill. It's like, that's really nice. Or when you see the the scene with the lady in red, when you see his glasses again, there's the gun from Agent Smith pointing at Neo in one lens, and then you just see Neo alone in the other lens. Maybe you see the gun, I can't remember, but it's very nice that the reflections tell a story as well. And then it becomes a big deal when Neo breaks Agent Smith's glasses, that you know now he's not invincible anymore. Now Neo actually has that power, that the sunglasses actually tell a freaking story in this movie. Kind of a cool thing to me. The earpiece, the agent earpiece, was something that that always, and that that bleeds into the second one as well. Um, I I think that that's so interesting when the moment when Neo breaks his glasses and it's it's oh he's shattered a bit of that that bubble that surrounds the agents and and when you know Agent Smith takes his earpiece out he's he di- he essentially disconnects himself from the larger piece he becomes this autonomous thing that has this vendetta against you know neo but humanity in general and and i think it is really interesting that they used those things to further explore the characters because i mean it, again that's the deli- it's so deliberate everything is so deliberate in this movie it doesn't feel like there's any room for like super- superfluous choices it, of course of course the glasses broke at that moment to tell this story the earpiece is a representation of their own kind of enslavement that they're bound to the system through that plug. 
there is some, you know, some of the philosophy of like, uh, you know, to exist is to be seen or something like that. I can't remember what the saying is of the, the recognition uh, of seeing eyes. Even that comes back in Cloud Atlas in the bond in the first era between the person who is doing the co- lawyer who's doing the contract for the slavery trade and the slave. And he says, how did you know I would could would help you? And he just because we saw each other, you looked me in the eyes, and nobody else does, uh, as he implied. But on Agent Smith's part, did you notice that he is different from the beginning? There is a, there's, there's a tell, and I don't think I'd ever noticed it until now. When he's crushed the truck into the phone booth, there's three agents standing there, and Smith is at the centre, the two on either side, hands hang loosely without any kind of anything. Smith has clenched fists. He's angry. So it is implied that Smith has, we know he's already changed because clearly he's disgusted by this world, which is also an emotion. He's already evolved and changed as well. Um, and I, I'm curious about, cause later when he meets the Oracle, he calls her mother and it said kind of, like, you know, nastily, uh, but, you know, the architect and the oracle are the parents of all these programs. And as I said before, she's there to create uh, variables that are not predictable. So it, it did, as, as, as she deliberately planted something in Smith or did something, some seeds he sowed thousands of turns ago or whatever has grown in Smith to become evolution that he is the next stage i just love that this movie really put hugo weaving on the map like i was already familiar with him from of course priscilla or uh even proof i absolutely love the film proof reckless kelly (laughs) of course he's the best villain (laughs) of course as a lawyer a banker banker Yeah, there's not enough Yahoo Serious. I mean, if you're going to start a podcast, why not just the Yahoo Serious podcast? But it's so great that this really, I mean, this is before he ended up going into Lord of the Rings and some of these other, you know, major landmark things. I'm glad that the Wachowskis continued to work with him through what V for Vendetta. Was he in Cloud Atlas as well? Oh, yeah. You shouldn't laugh at some of the characters he plays because they are nightmares, but he is having a wonderful time. Because if you remember in Cloud Atlas, essentially there's three types of characters. There's characters who are always good, there's characters who are flitting backwards and forwards, and these characters are always bad. And Hugo Weaving is ultimately the representation of evil, uh, of the voice in the ear that commands you to do what is wrong. And so he is the extension. Agent Smith could be the next character after the last era in Cloud Atlas. Like that Matrix could still happen in that universe. I wasn't sure what to make of Cloud Atlas. Some of the makeup choices and stuff just felt a little weird to me. I I admire what they were trying to do. I just don't know if they were 100% successful. There's a lot I like in that movie, but rewatching it is a massive commitment. And there are certain vignettes and certain characters that are easily the most affecting things I've ever seen. I I think about it constantly and it makes me super upset and, but I just don't want to sit down and rewatch it, and that makes me a bad a bad film watcher. I think. <laughs> I think last night was my f- fourth viewing, maybe 
fifth and it clicks together and gets easier to watch every time and I cried multiple times last night both for things relating to myself and other things and it's absolutely a beautiful masterpiece and I adore it in every single way. So I knew about Lawrence Fishburne being in, what, like a Cadillac or a Kia commercial? I can't remember which one it was. I I think he's been in at least two or three different car commercials. Let me tell you why you're here. It is the world of luxury that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. We just want to get our car. Take the blue key and go back to the luxury you know. You take the red key and you'll never look at luxury the same again. I forgot about Hugo Weaving being in a GE commercial where he basically reprises the role of Agent Smith, which seems really bad that you would be using Agent Smith as a spokesperson for your brand. Doesn't seem right. It'd be like using Cyrus the Virus for your brand. I found software that intrigues me. It appears it's an agent of good. GE has wired their medical hardware with innovative software to be in many places at the same time. Using data to connect patients to software, to nurses, to the right people and machines. Helping hospitals treat people even better while dramatically reducing waiting time. Now a waiting room is just a room. Agent Smith certainly represents a certain uh, political leaning that wouldn't be so offended by a uniformity and order. I mean, we can't really understate how important this movie has been and continues to be to pop culture. Obviously, we're on the the eve of the fourth movie being released and bullet time you know though bullet time wasn't necessarily an invention for this film it feels like they very much perfected it for this film and then we would see it in so many other things being someone in a field of making videos and i'm sure ben that you can relate to this the whole idea of can you make it look more like the matrix was one of the requests that clients would give for a long time after this yeah, and it was beautiful watching the 4K remaster that actually made it look less like The Matrix. Brought a bit of the colour back into it from the original print, uh, which had been stripped out a bit with the greens over the years. I kind of hate that they are taking out the greens, because, I mean, the greens were a nice way of seeing, like, okay, we're in The Matrix, it's got a green tint. The sequels have more of the green. They clearly were also, even they were getting the thing to say look like The Matrix, I think, for the sequels. <laughs> but I... It, it struck me more watching that 4K remaster how much it feels like Dark City with those sets and those that lighting and that colour. And even, like, this is Bill Pope who directed Crow City of Angels, if I remember correctly. And Bill Pope was a cinematographer, that kind of that sticky industrial 90s feel, which the green kind of smoothed over a bit. Uh, so I, I, I liked going back to that. But I was definitely having some post-production PTSD flashbacks watching that the sequels, at least, when you've got the hundreds of Agent Smiths and my brain just sees that and goes like, that's whole days of just filming Hugo weaving, looking left, looking right, looking up, being happy, being angry. And I'm just like, ah, 
uh, Russia's trauma flashback, Russia's trauma flashback. These films were just, like, where did this come from? Like, what the hell? Like, who the hell? I know it's Joel Silver, but as you were saying, like, the the script was bouncing around for so long and everyone going, nah. And even now, it's like, nah. Like, how did this get made? How did it get made the way it did? Like, it, I know it's like, the, I, 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 I know there's probably answers to it, but I feel like the answers don't even answer that. Because it is so, like, what the hell? Wachowskis had only done Bound, and it's totally insane. <laughs> it's like, I, it must have just been, like, especially shooting in Australia, cheap tax write-offs and cheap labor or whatever. And well, There's so many things that would have gone into this to get The Matrix made that from this day and age, like, just seem inconceivable. Uh, you know, it's like the Cloud Atlas is... They had to, it's, you know, what's the biggest, most expensive independent film of all time because they had to draw funding from just about everywhere in Europe to get that made. Uh, they clearly have a skill for making films look far beyond what they cost and getting the money there and getting the people involved. And that's a hell of a big skill. Even at the time, like Fight Club was, Fight Club makes more sense getting made than this because you had Brad Pitt and, you know, it's, sexy and like this is sexy too but even in the 90s this was a weird sexy yeah because at this point i mean keanu reeves like yes he had been in speed but that had been five years before and the films that he made after that were just a string of if not outright bombs like lower tier type of things i mean i love and mnemonic but people hated that movie it's time's coming back around chain reaction Pretty, pretty bad movie. Little Buddha. Feeling Minnesota. Little Buddha. <laughs> uh, when was Little Buddha? Well, that was before uh, Speed. That was 93. So you're doing Last Time Before I uh, Committed Suicide, The Devil's Advocate, which I know that was kind of popular. But this wasn't being sold on the back of Keanu Reeves. Like, hey, there's a new Keanu Reeves movie out. Okay. Yeah, it was being sold on the back of Matrix. <laughs> it was a question. Carrie Ann Moss, like I had never heard of her before this movie, and then she starts to show up in this. She starts to show up in uh, Memento, and it's just like, oh wow, okay. I mean, we knew who Lawrence Fishburne was, but it's not like again, you know, oh, I'm going to see like, okay, yeah, deep cover, like the the big Lawrence Fishburne film. But it's again, you're not like, oh, I'm gonna go see the new Lawrence Fishburne movie. So it was very smart the way that they cast this, and that they took all of these really good actors and put them all together and to have that the the famous poster of like Joey Pantoliano, Carrie Ann Moss, Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves it's like wow these four actors are really terrific and to play off of the whole Keanu the stereotype of him as being this kind of bubble-headed beach bum type of thing with and then to even have him watching Lawrence Fishburne jumping to another building and giving the famous whoa it's kind of funny now to watch it because that's what people thought his whole career was. They thought he was as dumb as a Johnny Utah or a, 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 a Ted from Bill and Ted. You know, it's like, no, he's got a lot more stuff going on in here. Yeah, it's like those cultural elements we were talking about before. They're all gateways into this film and they appear silly and daft like Keanu Reeves appeared silly and daft. But there's actually a lot more going on there than you think. The casting thing's interesting because... It's not so noticeable in the first Matrix. I mean, you've talked about Hugo Weaving absolutely for Australian actors who have gone boom since. But watching two and three, it really drove home the point since uh, Australian 
import cinema production has been such a big thing post this, post Lord of the Rings. Uh, New Zealand, I know, but general area of going, hey, we could make things on the other side of the world. We are terrible at finding new actors. <laughs> if we were better at it, we've become horrendously bad at finding new actors. But you guys are great at it because watching Reloaded and Revolutions, it was just like, holy shit, it's Essie Davis. Holy shit, it's Nash Edgerton. Holy shit, it's Lackey Hume. And all of these people like are almost not in the film. There was a couple other people I like, uh, spotted in there that had, were like, 10 years treading water, 5, 10 years treading water with nothing or even longer, and suddenly, bam, Essie Davis is, everyone loves Essie Davis. Lucky Hume's doing fantastic work on TV. Nash Edgerton and his brother are shooting up the, like, charts with their film photography together. It's just, yeah, it, 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 this, this film is like the, like, we've, it happens over and over again. If you look at these actors' filmography, they were doing these kind of five-second, five-minute parts in big American or English films. And we were just still not noticing, even though they turn in great performances. Like the Essie Davis's stuff is pretty minor in uh, Reloaded and Revolutions, mainly working with the, the Smith human. But they all do great work. And it's just, yeah, it's crazy how we don't notice anymore that we have these amazing actors and we just kind of blank it all out. So I've avoided this entire time talking about the sequels because I fucking hate the sequels to the point where the existence of the sequels was almost enough for me to hate the matrix. Like it took a long time of me getting those out of my mind so that I can watch the matrix and not think about those abortions. Cause I just despise them. And I'm so curious because I think both of you guys like the sequels and I have no idea why you would like the sequels. I rewatched the second one last night as well, but I have not rewatched the third one in a while. And I'm sad now because I can't make broad statements about how wonderful they all are. But I can say about the second one um, that it's, I use these terms to mean exactly what they mean. It's much more feminine. It's much more organic. They're underground. They're human bodies together, real live human bodies together. They're experiencing wildly human things together. It's amazing and organic and passionate and sweaty and real. And it stands in such contrast to, you know, this fake world that we're steeped in in the first one. And obviously that's in the second one. And there's great things in the second one. There's the Merovingian in the second one. There's some great fight sequences. And I, it, for the second one also furthers the idea of you were talking about expelling things, Mike. Also imbibing things comes into heavy play and that's explored quite a bit in the second one. What, what can you put into someone in the matrix that will change them, change what they're doing? And then you start to think about the Oracle giving Neo things and it's all very fascinating. I think there are potentially many stories being told in the first movie. I think the second film specifically, and probably the third if I had watched it, um, takes what I liked about the first movie and goes and tells that story. So I completely get why people would feel thrown off and they didn't get what they wanted and it's not where they were hoping it would go. But for me, it kind of did go where I was hoping it would go. My only disagreement is on Meryl Vingian because it's not played by Vincent Cassell. Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> I can't help it. Fucking hated the Merovingian. Monica Bellucci sitting right there. You've just—it just doesn't feel right to not be Vincent Cassell. It's like, just please come on. <laughs> he feels too 
He, I, I didn't, I never realized that actor was actually French because he feels so much like he's playing a fake French person. But that, that, that makes sense because does the machine know what the French are other than from hammy French actors in bad films that might have lasted the war? <laughs> so even that I have to kind of go like, it's fine. It makes sense. But yeah, that, that was, Christine, that was the big thing I noticed because I'm not sure when I watched the sequels last. It probably was a long time ago. And watching that second one, um, it's the opposite in how it uses bodies. Like the way humans use their bodies in the real world is love and connection and art and movement. It's all of these things that are nothing to do with force and power and violence at all. Whereas bodies are completely force and power and violence in Matrix One. And that really, really struck me as right from the get go, that first half an hour was like changed a chunk of my interpretation of that film. The only problem I had with it being underground is that if I was stuck underground for that long, I would have figured out how to make paints and painted everything a different colour. But that's my like only complaint about the underground world. <laughs> the whole idea of like ghosts and vampires are programs and then you get get into like the whole key maker thing. I can't believe you don't love that idea. I think that is so fascinating. The idea that these things, these huge cultural archetypical folklore, folk tales throughout time are actually based in these something we never even thought. Oh, the reimagining of those tropes and ideas is so fascinating to me. Yeah, and it, and it ties in with the deja vu. It doesn't come out of left left field. It's there in the first one. The Merovingian, the whole you have to kiss me. I mean, uh, oh, I have nothing good to say about those movies. Okay, so my biggest simple complaint is that there's too much backdrop. And the backdrop is the system of the Matrix, which is the Merovingian and all that stuff. And it's kind of superfluous, really. And it does make the films heavy. And it is, I find, I find watching those two films more of a chore than doing Cloud Atlas. It's always been about Neo and Smith. It ends where it starts. It starts where it ends. It begins with Smith. It ends with Smith. The system, the machine, is the backdrop. That's like this society. Like it will change or it won't change. It doesn't matter because what is occurring is these two forces of change that are colliding. And it, to say that the left and right is drastically oversimplifying because it's nowhere near as simple, simple as that, but it is more close to being a monoism, mono, monism versus pluralism because Smith is a singularity. There is nothing else. It is pure reason and order, even though he is not. Like that's and that's part of his psychosis with that split of thinking that he is order and he isn't. And Neo is accepting that there is both order and chaos and that they can work together and the importance of sacrifice. And so it's it should have always just really like the war needed to be a little bit more of a backdrop. And it needed to just hold those two elements together to really bind it. And what I think that though the, the, the game is like, I wouldn't take any of it out because all the Melvingian and all that stuff, I think is one of the clues to what it's really all about. Besides the fact that it's freaking called revolutions is that it's about revolutions, at least recent revolutions that essentially, you know, I don't know too much about enough revolutions to make this a broad statement. But in relation to the French Revolution, you have 
good ideas. You have good people who start to shift things, who start to change and shake and rattle and say, we require actual freedom, we require actual engagement in our civilization and our society. And then that gets taken over by bad faith actors who are self-interested, who want uniformity and to bind things together actually even stronger, which then leads to the terror. And that is essentially the play out of the two films, is a recreation in a different form of how revolutions start, or even three films, that how revolutions start and how they often collapse. But being, you know, an optimistic film, it won't allow that to happen. It still recognises that ultimately nothing quite changes. Like the, the Matrix Revolutions ends with the Matrix still exists, but those who choose, who, those who start to wake up and do not want to be there will be allowed to be free. It's kind of like, it feels really real to how things go. And as a reflection of ourselves, it feels, like I said before, I don't think that they're good entertainments, but they are really, it's, they're backwards and forwards like that. These films just can't juggle it. And it comes back to what I was saying about the synchronicity. Like, it, it was right. The first one was right. Things that don't work, work. It's incredible. It wasn't with two and three, but they're still so important and there's still so much going on in there. And, you know, you listen to the, the listening to that, the, the philosopher's commentary, they say it straight from the get go. You can't consider the first film without the second and third because all of the ideas, those ideas didn't get stitched on. They all click and roll together and they're all still bound up and connected with all of these ideas that go back even beyond recorded human history. Like of how we exist in the world and the creation of meaning and how societies and politics flow and ebb and civilizations change and Nebuchadnezzar and all these different things. It's just kind of incredibly beautiful. It's just they didn't quite pull it off. I mean, for me, the action sequences go on too long. The awful fight of all the Agent Smiths against Neo, I mean, the bowling pin sound effect when he throws one of the agent smiths at other agent smiths they just look so bad and at this point i mean for me one of the fatal flaws is the end of the first movie because now neo can fly and it's like okay well why aren't you just superman and the rest of the other films which doesn't you know i would not like that but it's like you have given him too much power and now you have to take it back. Like, yes, he does fly and shake off all these Agent Smiths in the second film, but it's like, hey, or maybe it's the third. I don't know. They all blend together to me. But it's like, why aren't you just doing that all the time? You know, if that's if you have that power, just use it. So it's just, I don't know. Just Like I said, I think d- despite what the philosophers say, I think I can just watch the first movie and be happy about it and try to block the other two out of my mind. Well, you do get the note that the the agents in the second one are upgrades, quotation marks, which they literally say. And I love the representation of the agents in the second one because you see them and you're like, oh, they're bigger. <laughs> and they look like bodybuilders in suits. They don't look like feds. Little touches like that I really love. Uh, the freeway sequence is still incredible and Mona Lisa Overdrive, the piece of music that plays over it is still one of my favourite pieces of music from a film and I loved playing GTA Vice City with that blaring over the top and tearing around. The special effects. Looking at the special effects now, I think they're beautiful. I really like them. I know at the time they felt 
more janky. I remember them feeling more janky. But now they're kind of beautiful because they're transitional. They feel more like an animated cartoon. And there's an artistry in that that is really its own thing. And so it doesn't feel uncanny valley because they're not, it's not there. So they're not at a point where they can recreate realistically. And they're far enough away from that that it looks like its own kind of way of presenting people and that ties in well with that we've had the animatrix just before that that we've had an animated vision of this world i love all of that and i that i will give you that like the mona lisa over jive track and the credits music on the third one are like the only two good pieces of music in the entire second and third films the music is really bad like it's so hollywood like you are feeling this now oh quick shift now you're feeling this uh, it drove me crazy so i'm really grateful tom tick for stepping in and doing the score for part four there's heaps of things that i don't like about it that don't work for me and i still kind of go like there's only a handful of like music that i would rip out entirely and and say just do it again guys <laughs> we got permission this time I like a lot of Rage Against the Machine songs, not a ton, but a, enough. I have to say that that Rage song that ends the first one, I really am not a fan of Marilyn Manson, but the Marilyn Manson song that is at the end of the first one, I mean, the whole soundtrack from beginning to end of the first movie just really kicks ass and really helped introduce me to a lot of bands that I wouldn't have known otherwise. I really like what they were doing with the soundtrack. Even, you know, I talked about how the camera's spinning around the phone and how they show up and, you know, you're doing the cross cutting and it's just that little piece of music that's going on in there. It's just like, that's work. That works. That's all perfect. You know, the, the use of the music in the first one, you rob zombie in the sex club and it's the extended hellbilly version, all this. It's like, that's really cool. And it's one soundtrack that I still own on CD, which, uh, in case the audience doesn't know is an outmoded, uh, form of entertainment. You could actually record music onto physical devices. The soundtrack is where I got my, I was discovered the song where I got my username from that I have to this day of Dissolve Pet. Uh, Dissolved Girl, the Massive Attack song, uh, which I was introduced to by this, and definitely the context of this film helped influence my alteration of that to match what my username still is uh, many decades later. I thought that was from your hobby. <laughs> That's what people generally think. <laughs> when I when I got my two kittens and I had to give them the vet my uh, email address, I was like, I've oh, really got to get a different email address. <laughs> When I came up with that and you Yahoo it, uh, it was just me and a Mexican dog food company. So mm, I too was shocked uh, when Mike admitted his absolute loathing to the point of wishing erasure. <laughs> well, it's just I've never actually met one person that likes the sequels, much less two. So this is kind of a weird thing for me. It's like it's like finding a unicorn for me. Uh, my husband loves them, too. Um, wow. Probably one of the reasons why we watch them as much as we do. Uh, it really furthers the, if you're if you're into that, if you're, it furthers the Neo-Trinity relationship. Um, I, for one, am always there for a love story and for an interpersonal relationship like theirs. It's just great. I know that you said he's too high powered, but he's only really that high powered in, in, in the Matrix. He, when he comes out of the Matrix, he's just a guy dealing with a war and people don't know whether to trust him or not. And, and I don't know. 
I think there's something in very human about those uh, sequels. Yeah, and, and even being the Matrix doesn't always help him because even though it's a weird sub-digression that doesn't last very long, getting tra- trapped in the, the, the subway and for the, the train man, another awesome essential Bruce Spence appearance in a trilogy. Bruce Spence, man, yeah. Is there, was there, did someone pass a law that Bruce Spence has to be in every uh, <laughs> big trilogy that is made down under? And- well, yeah, he was in the prequels. He was in uh, the Lord of the Rings films. Though his scene was cut, unfortunately, but at least thank goodness for those extended versions. But yeah, you know, he's. I think they do actually use or displace his power more successfully than you remember. Well, they blind him at one point, right? Kind of like Paul Atreides. That's in the real world. He gets blinded. Yeah, yeah. It gets really, really complicated. And the Smith part, as I said, I, I, I wish that they had dropped a few things to concentrate on Smith more. I don't know quite how you would do that, and I'm really hoping it doesn't appear he's going to be in the fourth one because he shouldn't be. Smith is fucking things up off screen. Like, even the machines, you know, the whole system, this whole war grinds to a halt solely because of Smith, and Weaving is still knocking it out of the park in that one. And, like, as I said, you know, even though it was giving me a little bit PTSD flashbacks, like, the scenes where it's all of the hymns doing all their little reactions and things are tremendous. I love them. And the fight scenes, too, they they don't go on quite as long as I remember them, so that was good, too. Uh, it is a bit silly and dopey, but I'm also here for that. As I said, though, like, the hammy stuff, they don't land a big chunk of the time. But you, you, did you say you hadn't really seen the Animatrix, Mike? Correct. I tried to watch it the other day, and I was just like, mm, this isn't for me. I was going to try and do Enter the Matrix, but when we were the, the, the video game that fills in the gaps between two and three, but when we were like, okay, we're just doing the Matrix, my brain is already leaking out of my ear. But I haven't done that, but I do find that the Animatrix fills out certain aspects, and parts of certain stories in the Animatrix like, have stayed with me forever. Um, the one about the athlete is just, I think, incredibly just wow, like an absolute work of art. Um, and I love the story about the kid who is unfortunately kind of bad in the films. But I have even, I have a theory about that, which will be interesting to see if I'm right in the fourth one, because, uh, yeah, yeah. Christine, have you ever noticed about the kid in two and three? I think every single time he's, on camera, he enters from left to right in almost the same way. <laughs> no, I didn't notice. Sorry, that. that's going to drive you insane now, like it drives me. Now, insane. I to, <laughs> now I have to watch the third one, so I'll be on the lookout for it. I'm like, is, is this? Am I meant to read into this? Is this like some weird full motion video kind of like nod, or did they were just so rushed they never noticed that the kid enters? almost the same way every time in the same level of frame and everything. I'm just like, glitching, twitch. <laughs> I don't know. It has to be deliberate. It has to be deliberate. <laughs> uh, this, I would say the first one, yes, but this, I do think the second and third ones are rushed. They do feel rushed and they feel jinxed. Like they were, they should have taken the signs of the synchronicity. Of the first one was not with them. I mean, wasn't, didn't the, the, the actress who played the Oracle, wasn't she changed because she died? The one who played the Oracle? Yeah, it, there's so much that, like, within the film and external of the film feels like it's working against it, that they they feel a bit cursed to me. And that they still come out the way they do with their in, 
intent and their philosophy and their beliefs in whole, in, in totally whole. Maybe not good entertainment, maybe not successful films, but there's so much that they hold together against all odds in ways that almost every single Hollywood action sci-fi film has completely failed uh, since is still remarkable enough for me to be like, yeah, I, I love them. Well, and if people are curious, we are going to do not uh, Ben and Christine and I, but uh, Chris Ash and I will be talking about the fourth Matrix film when that comes out. So, hey, Mike, you, you're going to have to give us a bonus episode, and so we can come back and torture you more with two and three. Uh, you can't, you can't just one and four, and uh, we lovers of those between. Very, very binary of you, uh, Mike. It's like the guy who always fucking bugs me about covering more Scottish films. You could start your own podcast. You can only talk about local heroes so many times, you know. I'm here for Cloud Atlas. You gotta put my head up right now. Cloud Atlas, 100%. I can promise you this. I will never talk about Speed Racer on this show. So not even a, I hate this movie so much I want to talk about it for two hours type of thing. What about Jupiter Ascending? Oh my God. I'm going to put myself out for that one right now. I love that movie. And I love Speed Racer. I love the Wachowskis. I have only seen Speed Racer once. I did quite love it, but it also it does tie in with their thematic consistency on process of objectification. I need to revisit it before I make final comment. Jupiter Ascending is a bad, bad film. But But like the eighties bad, right? Like that's bad. The Wachowskis, <laughs> whether they understood it or not, nailed a kind of campness that makes the badness be enjoyable and okay. And I fucking hate Eddie Redmayne, and he is fucking terrible in that film. And it's perfect because it's it's so ridiculous and daft and silly, and it kind of gets that. And it's, it, I, yeah, I do have a bit of a soft spot on Jupiter Ascending as well. So I have not seen Sense8, but looking at the Wachowski filmography... I guess the only things that I liked by them were bound in the Matrix, and that's it. I think that's probably a common sentiment at this point. I did find it funny that um, in the commentary with uh, Cornel West and, and Ken Wilber that uh, West argues that Americans in particular hated the sequels because they gave up the dualistic simplicity of the first film and embraced a more ambiguous, complex uh, meta-narrative. Sure. That's exactly why I hated it. It's that fragile white male ego that I have. It is. You just, you gotta, you gotta keep working on that. You're, you're, you're not the one yet. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break and play preview for next week's show. Hi, babe. What would you do if the girl of your dreams decided to become... Hey, how you doing? ...the boy next door? We'll talk more later. What a fox. Dresses like Elvis Costello. Looks like the karate kid. I'm going to get him. Who do you think you are, Tootsie? Okay, yeah, go. Just confused. Of course you're confused. You're wearing my underwear. Just one of the guys. Was it something I said? From Columbia Pictures, rated PG-13. Now playing. That's right, we'll be back next week with the 80s gender swap story, Just One of the Guys. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts this week, Ben and Christine. So, Ben, what has been keeping you busy, sir? Um, I'm thinking about stuff. Uh, I think I have to do something now. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll, to be a little of a, 
uh, I think I've talked about my mental health before. It's getting better, I think, partly because I'm getting off of my antidepressants and they were definitely messing me up. So kids, make sure you're on the right medication because it does can do damage to you. But also, you know, don't be afraid to be on medication because sometimes it's good to have that scaffolding. But it is a weird feeling to have my brain working a lot better. <laughs> and so I am attempting to do something with it. Otherwise, I will drive, my, drive myself crazy every day, waking up at 5am and thinking about Nietzsche and Bohm and all sorts of crazy stuff. So uh, watch this space for that. But otherwise, it's still just horticulture, teaching myself woodworking, trying to organize my library, you know, general life sanity stuff. <laughs> and Christine, what is new with you? Well, I still have a podcast. It's called The Feminine Critique. Uh, the other part of that podcast is sometimes on this podcast. Her name is Emily. So if you enjoy either one of us or perhaps both of us, you can check that out. I also just released a new book of short stories. So if you enjoyed anything I had to say here, maybe you should read uh, what I write. And you can find me on Twitter at xteen underscore makepeace. Well, thank you so much, folks, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you are interested in advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com to inquire about uh, coming on here. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Oh, no.
Oh!